0: When I was six or seven, my dad took me camping on a farm owned by The Maps. It's a big farm, about a thousand acres, some they used for dairy, others for farming. But a vast portion of it was just forested. It was early fall and the leaves were already changing. Oh, I had a brand new hatchet, a sleeping bag, a mess kit that opened up to a treasure of pots and dishes and forks and knives, a Swiss Army penknife that MacGyver would envy, and a canteen that was insulated by a fur blanket. I mean, these weren't camp grade equipment, but for a kid, it was a treasure trove. We found a flat spot of land just above a small lake. We built a lean-to out of branches and fallen canopy that protected our upper body. Made a mattress out of ferns to sleep on and dinner came out of a can and I learned to make my first fire. And the next day while well, the farmer showed us the farm including giving me a tractor ride, milking a cow and even shooting a 22 rifle at a target. From that point on, I love farms and farmland and the farmers are in a constant conversation with nature. The ones who raise, the ones that grow. I love driving country roads and seeing farms with giant barns, fields dotted with rolled hay or crops chasing the sun. And as an amateur chef, I love farmer's markets, especially when the locally grown produce is available. You can smell the soil and imagine all that went from farm to plate. Well, my guest today is a farmer who also farmed an opportunity that few saw and even fewer believed in. He saw an opportunity with hemp, but had to be relentless in getting permission to grow it as many connected hemp to cannabis. Well, he turned that crop into a brand, into a business worth over $500 million. And did I mention he dropped out of school at age 13? His name is Mike Fada, and this is his story.
1: When I started Mantua Harvest, I had the vision that the world would become a healthier place and people would experience that through eating hemp foods. We work with over 125 farmers in in Canada to grow our crop, and and the benefit to our farmers is is not only that hemp is a very profitable crop for them to grow, uh, but it's also a very sustainable crop, so growing hemp in a rotation helps to break up a, a pest cycle and break up a weed cycle, which makes not only their hemp crop successful, but their other crops that they grow more successful as well, which is ultimate profitability for the farm.
2: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Mike Fatta, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Happy to be here. So Mike, I chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance. And the idea is that we discover insights and lessons that inspire us to do more and to be more. And your story is one of growth as a crop, a brand, a business, and how you have grown as an individual to today where you're helping so many others chase their dreams. But I want to begin by your early days because your circumstances when you're young wasn't a skip in the park. You grew up in a fairly poor situation with a single mom. Tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, uh, I was born in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, and my mom and dad, unfortunately, split up when I was two years old. And uh, and my mom uh, moved us to Winnipeg. And, uh, uh, you know, growing up with a single mom, and uh, there was my brother and I, um, we were, uh, you know, just hard times making, uh, making the bills for the rent and uh, uh, and that went on for for years. So I, I kind of grew up and even though my mom uh, wanted to say that we were uh, upper middle class, uh, you know, we were we had 20 bucks uh, at the end of her paycheck after we paid the kind of minimum credit card bills. So uh, the poorness was real. Do you think that stays
0: with someone their entire life and some people maybe as a curse, but others as a gift because there's a they value money and they value situations
1: differently? I think so. I mean, I, and I, you know, like many things in life, I think it's, I think it's an opportunity. I think it's a gift and and a kind of a threat. Uh, but you know, that survival instinct, uh, I, I see it in me. I see it in my brother. I see it in other entrepreneurs that that maybe grew up in in similar situations. So I do think it can be helpful. Um, I've had to do a bunch of emotional processing personally uh, because I'm not in survival mode anymore, and and sometimes that still can you know kind of come up.
0: Do you think that? As a society, because we're so eager to take care of everyone, and I think that having a social conscience is very important. But if we lost a little bit of our hunger, I I know a friend of mine that grew up in Africa. He said we always had to chase our second meal of the day, and and that made us hungry. Do do you think that we've lost a little bit that edge in Canada because we have the resources just to make sure that everyone has a, or at least many people have the three square meals a day?
1: Yeah, I mean, those there's um. It's an easier time to, uh, to, to, to live, maybe a little more sheltered. And so people, um, I think you know, can maybe grow less because it, it, they're, they're living sheltered. Uh, and my dad is, uh, is from Italy and he immigrated to Canada and, and, you know, worked his butt off manual labor to, uh, to, to, to kind of establish himself. Uh, and he would say things like, you know, Canadians uh, just want to eat cake, you know, that is you, you're, you're in celebration mode all the time or, or, and, and, and it's not, uh, you know, there's not that hard work kind of ethic and that's not everybody, but uh, you know, I think the time that we're living in with social media. Media and stuff, it, it uh, even uh, intensifies that.
0: And I grew up in a very poor circumstances as well. And, you know, I was embarrassed by it. How did you deal with being poor? And did it impact you in terms of your ability to integrate with people and just be a normal kid?
1: Yeah, it definitely did. And I kind of had the, the double whammy of being uh, overweight. So I was I was the nerdy kid that was overweight. And then and then I didn't have any new stuff. You know, so I, I think, you know, uh, clothing is one example where um, we just didn't have uh, we didn't have money to buy new clothes on the regular. And so, you know, I, if I was feeling embarrassed is because I was wearing uh wearing wearing yesteryear's uh shirt or hoodie or something and uh, and it was very visible and um uh and so you know those are some of the thoughts that i um you know struggled with outside of uh, you know some of the other social pressures
0: you know i remember uh pea jackets were the latest thing and all my friends had a brand new pea jacket with the, the peg that went into the loop and my mom felt so bad for me. So she bought me sort of this faux pea jacket with buttons and I just got laughed at. And uh, it's interesting how it just kind of makes you decide, you know, which course in life are you going to follow? D- did you do anything to escape? Like a lot of times when I talk to people in these circumstances, when they just felt they did, they were square peg in a round hole. You you talk about your, your weight and stuff. Did you lose yourself in books or television or do you just plod through it?
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, when I was younger, I, I, you know, I probably, um I numb myself with food. It was kind of one, one aspect of it. And, and I obviously had a double negative to it. Uh, I also uh, was recruited by the tobacco industry when I was uh, 11, 11 or 12 years old. So I, I smoked cigarettes, unfortunately, when I was young and uh, thankfully quit that uh, bad habit. But those are a couple of things that, uh, uh, that I was using to, you know, if I look back to numb myself.
0: So, Mike, you drop out of school at age 13. What caused that? Uh,
1: you know, a couple things. One, the social pressure going into high school and being an overweight kid, uh, a poor overweight kid, I guess, was too much for me. And, and uh, I also um, wanted to start making money and I wanted to start working so I could uh, support myself and help support our family.
0: And your mom, from what I understand, supported that move. How did you convince her that that was the right thing for you to do at that time?
1: I I told her mom I don't want to go to school anymore, and she said you can drop out of school if you start working. And I said deal. And so it was it was pretty. Uh, she was she she was supportive and and uh, and really just wanted to. She her I think her concern was that I would I would stop growing, and uh, and with work uh, jumping into the workforce, she was okay with that.
0: Did you have a relationship with your dad at that time?
1: Uh, barely, you know, just once a year or something. I'd see him. Uh, my relationship with my dad didn't really start till I was in my twenties. Uh,
0: So he wouldn't have had any influence either way on, on that decision. No, no, he didn't. I don't, I don't think he even knew for years. I'm curious when someone drops out at that early age, how they feel immediately. And then after a few weeks, months, and even years, can you kind of just share with me kind of you, the individual, knowing that so many other people are chasing education and you're instead, you know, going to work every day?
1: Yeah. And I didn't start working right away. It was, it was months, you know, so I think, um, uh, you know, I felt, uh, I felt joy at first as a kid, thinking, "Okay, now I'm I'm in charge of my own schedule." Uh, And then, and then, you know, I went through the time of uh, of feeling a bit lost uh, um, because I, uh, you know, I I wasn't, I didn't have the routine that I was uh, that I was used to. So realizing now, I was just, I was in a transitionary space. And uh, and then after I uh, after I started working, um, then I I had you know a normal daily routine, and uh, and and it started to uh, to feel much better.
0: Special guest is Mike Fata, a self-made millionaire many times over, and a mentor and advisor to many. At age 13, drops out of school. Many spend a lifetime struggling to survive at that decision, and few thrive. Mike is an exception. In another interview I, I watched on you, you also talked about one of the things that was very much part of your life it was this, you know, obsession with junk food. And you weren't just an overweight kid. You got to the point where you hit almost 300 pounds on the scale by the time you were 18. How did you come to terms with that? Because I have to believe every morning when you get up and you look at yourself in the mirror, that just sets your day off on a very different trajectory than most.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, you know, being overweight and being obese, uh, is very hard. It's hard physically, you know, my body hurts uh, all the time. Mentally, I, 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 felt depressed more times than, than not. And and then, you know, I was an emotional, uh, ro- roller coaster, uh, uh, on, on the regular basis. And I say even my spirit was uh, dulled. And so, yeah, it was, it was very, very challenging. And I lived, you know, years uh, through that. And, um, Uh, And then one day I I had enough. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and and decided that I was going to do something about it.
0: So a lot of people say they're going to do something, but that say-do gap is almost impossible to bridge for many. What did you do differently where you said, I've had enough and I'm going to change who I am and how I look and how I feel?
1: You know, I'm, I'm thankful that I had an, an older brother my, and my brother Don is four years older than me and and he was uh, he was a chubby kid when he was young too and uh, uh, but he had already started working out and and, and weightlifting and bodybuilding and and uh, and so I, I looked up to him even though I saw a huge gap there but he, he said he would help me out you know that he would he would be uh, uh, take me to the gym and uh, and start working out and so i I, uh, I had that bridge that uh, that definitely helped me out
0: do you think that's a big reason why you spend so much of your time nowadays helping others is because of the gift your brother gave to you
1: it's part of it for sure um, you know my mom also was a person that gave back even though she she didn't have a lot as she went on in her career and, and started to uh, uh, to gain more and more kind of wealth uh, um, she she was always helping out she wanted to help her family out she wanted to help friends out she even would help you know her she was known her legacy around our our, our office was uh, was helping uh, co-workers out so um i i I've seen it in the family, but you know, I think it comes from now. I, I just I really enjoy, and I get a lot of pleasure from uh, from helping people on a daily basis. I think the best advice that I've received that I try to take to heart every day is is to dream big, to have big, hairy, audacious goals. It keeps the mind in a good space. And if you're shooting for the moon and you get the stars, well, that's a good thing. I didn't always dream to start my own business, but I always had that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I had my first paper out when I was seven years old, and uh, I learned the value of doing your own thing. Yeah, I think I think what keeps me driven every day. There's a combination of things. After my uh, life changes and and uh, and health changes, I'm really passionate about other people finding their path. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I also like to build things. So as we're building the business and and creating, uh, that, that drives me to to get up and and be on the go on a daily basis.
0: So I now want to shift to this this wild entrepreneurial story, and it really centers on health again. You discover hemp. This is a product that was legalized in 1998, but was put in a prison since the 1930s. Why was this plant so poorly thought of? Because you've certainly become a world leader and world renowned in terms of saying this is one of the, the superfoods. Why was it in prison so long?
1: Uh, misinformation really. Um, and lack of education, hemp and, and marijuana are both in the cannabis uh, family of plants, but hemp doesn't have any psychoactive drug to it. uh, So it's grown for food, uh, for fiber. Uh, but people were, you know, misinformed. And there's some conspiracy back in the thirties that some other industries thought to outlaw hemp and, and confuse it with marijuana. But basically for 50 years, if you said the word hemp, People thought you were talking about uh, marijuana, Uh, and uh, and so you know it it it, it was not only outlawed but everyone you know was frowned upon. You thought that you were a bad person. It was it was a bad four letter word. How did you discover that this plant
0: could bring so much benefit to consumers and and all the other ancillary things that hemp does? But let's just talk about the health. Efficacies. Where did you discover it? And what made you so passionate that you're willing to jump over a bunch of hurdles and say, I want to be someone that's going to base a lot of my life on it?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I always thought hemp was cool. When I was younger, I had a hemp bracelet. So I kind of knew about hemp, but I thought, you know, from a fiber standpoint, um, but when I went on my, uh, when I started my health journey, I went on a no fat diet, you know, Dr. Nathan Pritikin and, and, and his no fat, uh, regime back in the, in the mid 1990s. And so I was working out and, and, uh, and, and losing weight from, and, and cutting all the fat out of my diet until I fell to a place of really ill health. Um, and then I started, you know, I was reading more and more health literature and I read a book, fats that heal, fats that kill by Dr. Udo Erasmus, a Canadian, uh, that talked all about fats and, uh, and what, what, how essential omega-3 and, and omega-6 uh, fatty acids are, uh, and that they, uh, that hemp was the best source, but hemp wasn't available in Canada. It was only available in Europe. And you can also get essential fats from flaxseed and, and fish oils and stuff, but hemp was the best source of it. And so I read that book and, and, uh, and then it was the light bulb went off that I, I thought things were going to change from the no-fat diet to the right fat diet, um, and hemp could be uh, one of those valued products.
0: My growing hemp is one thing, but turning this into a vertically integrated business, where you go from farm to plate is tough. In my advertising world, I worked with major retailers, grocery retailers. I've worked with major food manufacturers. This is a club of titans. This is a consolidated industry. They don't like a lot of upstarts coming in. They certainly don't like people going after market share or the shelf that they, they've paid money for. But you accomplish all of this. Take us back to those early days of starting with hemp and then how you turn that into a brand and a business.
1: Yeah, it started with one uh, one farmer uh, in Manitoba here, one uh, an oil press, and we started pressing hemp oil and one health food store, the store right across the street from my mom's place. And I it took me uh, took me a couple of weeks to convince the store owner even to buy a couple bottles of hemp oil for me. I think the only reason he did was because I was spending money as a customer in his store. But then from there, we started just doing uh, education and, and, and demos and sampling it's, it was ground and pound one customer at a time, uh, you know, and uh, because I had this personal health story myself of losing over a hundred pounds, people were interested in what I had to say. And, and, uh, and I said, you know, you should be changing the fat in your diet and, and try hemp oil. And, and uh, it was that simple at first, but it was, it was, it was many, many hours of going out and, and sampling and, and, and triangling the products with, uh, with customers wherever we could. What advice can you give? to people that are
0: contemplating a startup because what you did is what i hear a lot it is grinding it is working it's it's personal selling it's looking people in the eye and letting them feel the passion that you have for the product that really matters in the early days it's not about any kind of get rich this is about you know huey lewis in the news who took 10 years before anybody ever discovered him playing in in clubs isn't it
1: yeah, you know, I think and, and this is the great thing about the natural products industry or the health food industry. It, it's a lifestyle. You know, it was a lifestyle for me. I was I was getting in better shape and better health myself. I was consuming my own product. I was very proud about it. And so I wanted to go out and talk to people about it. And so, you know, it, it is that farmer's market kind of mentality. You make a batch of a hundred and you go out and sell those hundred products to people and and then get feedback from them, hopefully learn something and make the product even better, uh, and then go make 250 of them and go and go find. 250 people to sell, but you know I look back just to, uh, at an award that I won and uh, and my uh, uh, my speech at the time or the the media interview was that in 2004 so i was uh, only 28 years old saying you know we're going to build this one customer at a time and and that's exactly what uh, we did but it was it wasn't thought of as a business it was really uh, thought of as a as a lifestyle and i didn't know anything about business
0: a lot of people in the early days of the health food movement created better for you products but they weren't necessarily better tasting so a lot of consumers went in and tried it once they didn't return and we all know that building a brand is about building a loyal base of customers Share with my listeners what you did differently to create a brand that got the attention of not only Canadian consumers, but consumers around the world.
1: Yeah, the number one thing, Tony, is we we you know focus on quality. Um, and and I'm am a big believer in quality. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about this. If you're going to do something at the highest quality level, and I'd say we built it to a world class level, um, you're you're, you're going to be thinking about your your consumers' experience with your product. So as it relates to hemp and hemp foods and hemp hearts being our, our flagship product, it had to taste good. You know, if hemp is is high quality, it has a rich nutty flavor that people enjoy. They enjoy it over flaxseed or even chia seed fish oils and such. Um, but you know, if, it, if it's not high quality, it can, it can taste poorly. And I think that's, that's the example. Like, you know, if someone's going to spend good money on something they, they want, they want a good experience and in food, it needs to be high quality. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. My
0: special guest is Mike Fatta. We come back, we'll talk to Mike about how the money is nice, but it's mentoring that keeps him driven, finding a way to help entrepreneurs harvest their ideas. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of the podcast Chatter That Matters. Key takeaway from this pandemic is how much we value our food, how it's grown and raised, and how secure is the supply chain. Well, I want to give a big shout out to RBC for what they do to support agriculture. And a great example, their partnership with Farm Credit Canada and the University of Guelph to create a free online course called Foundations in Agricultural Management to help farmers in Canada take their business to the next level. Farming matters to all of us and to RBC.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My guest is Mike Fada. He dropped out of school at 13, ballooned to 300 pounds, decided to take control of his health. In doing so, it discovers the properties of hemp as an essential fat. What role did the retailers play in really singing your song and talking about that this
1: is better for you and it tastes great? The natural food or the health food stores, um, you know, are, are a great place to to build a brand um, because you have a lot of the people that work in the stores are lifestylers themselves. So they consume the products, whether you know more plant-based or organic or better for you and essential fatty acid, plant protein, and so on. And so you can talk to the to the people that actually work at the store, and make friends there, and then and then they will um, sing the praises of the brand. They will help to find you know kind of promotional opportunities when when they, when they, when you can give a sample with a Event they're doing or so on. It's harder as you go out to you know grocery and 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 uh, and and kind of traditional retailers. But the natural foods channel or the health food store channel uh, is a great place to to build a healthy, better for you brand. Your business is a higher purpose than profit. I mean, what I read about now.
0: Let's get you grew it to over 100 million in sales, two exits valued and sold for over 500 million. So I mean, there was a pot of gold at the end of it. But when I listen to what you talk about. You talk about organic farming. You talk about the efficacy of the soil. You talk about treating people with respect. How important is it for entrepreneurs or anyone working for anyone that the business has a higher purpose and profit, that there's a North
1: Star that guides It's much more about do well with others and do well with the planet? I think personally, Tony, I think that was a, a nice to have 20 years ago when we started the business. I think it's a need to have nowadays. I think consumers vote with their dollars. They support products and entrepreneurs of, of products that they like, but they themselves want to make an impact. So I think the uh, the social and environmental impact or that triple bottom line approach to business uh, is, is more important than ever. You know, Manitoba Harvest has been a proud B Corp uh, benefit corporation. And and, uh, uh, and so it is about not only making a sustainable business that's profitable, but y- y- there is touch points there of social and environmental responsibility in all aspects of the business.
0: So somebody that drops out at 13 has you, intuition, maybe through some mentorship with your mom and your older brother, but build it one customer at a time. What was the biggest mistake you made along the way? And what was the biggest idea that you had along the way? And which one gave you the biggest benefit long-term?
1: You know I think the biggest mistake that I've had as an entrepreneur is is trusting people that my gut told me not to fully trust them and then and then it didn't work out so well they they tried to to damage the business or or be hurtful to the business and I, and I kind of knew it up front if I would have listened to my intuition so I think trust the gut as an entrepreneur is is a big one that I'm a believer in the biggest, yeah, some of the biggest successes. Well, you know, it, it all happened at in after about ten years in business. We were we were already doing about ten million in sales at that time, so we were we were a sizable business. Uh, but uh, we had we were we were selling like six or seven products: hemp oil, hemp hearts, hemp milk, uh, hemp seed butter, and uh, and Costco came uh, and gave us an opportunity and uh, and wanted us to demo hemp milk, uh, but I I said no, it's got to be hemp hearts, and I just felt it was the time was right to put all of our other products aside, basically, and really focus on hemp hearts because that was the one that I felt was having the best consumer experience and also the best at retail. And, and then just that year, it clicked. We launched at Costco. We launched in, in a number of other retailers in Canada, and the U.S. Main, mainstream big grocery stores. We took the business from ten million to twenty million that year, and then basically grew the business ten million dollars a year after that. Focused on hemp hearts as as the flagship product. Mike, I got to be
0: honest. You don't have to work. You you have the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Uh, You could be spend your life polishing sports cars, but you don't. You're tireless. You're relentless. The investment you make with both intellectual and financial capital to help other startups in the uh, health food space. Why this drive? Why, Why not just cash out and
1: enjoy the fruits of your labor? It feels good, Tony. At the end of the day, you know, I tried the uh, I tried the retirement, and and I'm just not someone to to sit on a beach or or, or to do nothing. I I want to help people. I want to help make this world a healthier place. Um, but it, it comes down to feeling good every day, and helping others makes me feel good.
0: And I love what you said in an interview that you hold space for something that you believe in, and you don't just hold space. You you defend it like a tireless warrior because you want to convince others to see what. You see, share an example of when you uncover something beyond the hemp days and you've seen something, maybe it's the investment you're making with mushrooms, but talk to my listeners about what it means to go after something. Because I think that's the difference between entrepreneurs that make things happen versus ones that dream about making it happen is this sense of what you do, defending space and
1: going after it. My mom was the one that shared the gift with me, uh, my gift of, uh, of that I had a vision and had the opportunity, I had the ability to like hold a vision. Um, and then later in life, I realized that not only could I hold a vision, I could defend that space. And so, you know, I, I'd use that example of of, uh, of psilocybin mushrooms, which, you know, and just in mushrooms in general, mushrooms are, are similar to cannabis, that they are uh, a food, a supplement, a medicine and a drug. But guess what? They're weird to most people. Uh, either most people don't know about mushrooms uh, and their and their superpowers, or or they just kind of written them off to say, no, yuck, I don't like mushrooms. I've tried a, I've tried a, a white mushroom mutton one time and I, I don't like it. And so, you know, I believe that the world is gonna change and as time goes on, more and more people are going to see the benefits. And so, and I know that's weird. Um, I, I stand out as being, you know, uh, different from most, um, but then when the world catches up and that consciousness catches up, and then all of a sudden say, hey, you you were an early early adopter, you kind of saw it first.
0: When you look at investment opportunities and the people behind it, are you looking for a lot of the attributes that you had, that maybe you grew up hungry, that you had a personal experience with something that transformed your life? Is that what you look for in individuals versus
1: sort of forty-page PowerPoint decks with lots of charts? You know, I always start with the product, so it's, it's a product that I enjoy personally, and, and and that I enjoy in my household, and my friends and family will like. And then it's the people, and the, and the, for the people, they don't have to come from the same the same upbringing as myself. I do find that you know entrepreneurs that grew up poor do have this extra gear in them, but it's it's not always from that path. But to, but I think you need that good combination of a great product, and then and then great people that are behind that business that that live the lifestyle and just want to see that business. You know, for, they could do that business for the next for the rest of their life, whether they're successful or not. Um, they would just keep on doing it. That, that those are the opportunities I look for because I, I I think then you know the 10x 100x growth opportunity is there. They just need some some support, either financial or or strategic support. One of the things
0: that I was listening to you talk about uh, when you're giving advice was this: the importance of building a network and mentors that you can trust. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well, you know, I was fortunate, you know, and, and I think, again, the natural products industry is a, is a great place um, for people helping other people. And I, and I couldn't have grown the business, you know, I'm high school dropout at 13. I couldn't have grown the business without strong mentors. And I was very, I'm very grateful that I had some outstanding uh, mentors that were legends in the natural products space when I was growing up. And, and they helped me with sales and marketing and operations and finance. And so I know that entrepreneurs need that to be successful. If not, you just, you're going to make too many mistakes and your business can die death by a thousand cuts. And so I think it's very important for entrepreneurs to not only have other entrepreneurs that they hang out with um, as a peer group, but also, you know, mentors that have done it before and can offer some advice and some just different view. And so, um, you know, that's why I put myself out there and and, and spend a lot of my time uh, mentoring because I, I it, it it is the, my best way of accomplishing my purpose of helping make this world a healthier place. Mentorship
0: is really one-to-one, but COVID kind of put a sledgehammer into that. And I read that you're doing some interesting things, leveraging technology to make sure that what you offer in terms of mentoring is available, not just to a one-on-one or even a small group, but around the world. Tell me a little bit about it.
1: I love technology. And when when I was locked up at home, I thought, how can I get my word out? And how can I touch these entrepreneurs that I want to touch? And so um, I use not only LinkedIn, but uh, we took to Clubhouse and started doing uh, uh, public trainings in Clubhouse. What that led to was Greg Fleischman and I to develop what is now the FATA and Fleischman Toolbox or uh which is a collection of all Greg and I's uh, forms, templates, and tools that we use to start up and grow our businesses in the natural products uh, industry. And uh, and so you can find there, you know, investor lists, investor pitch presentations, co-packer lists, uh, organizational charts, how to form a company, how to form an advisory board. There's just, the list goes on of, of ideas. It's all free. It's our give back. It's what I deem uh, mass mentorship. And now we're doing trainings on the fatofleishman.org site through Clubhouse, and, and we've touched over six thousand uh, entrepreneurs have accessed our, our toolbox over the last six months since we launched it. It's not one big win for for a business to be successful. It's a middle. It's a million little wins added up. The opposite is true. That it's usually not one big mistake that, that is going to hurt a business. It's 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 a million little mistakes that can that like, that can also really hurt a, a business. And so, uh, properly planning your 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 product and your approach to go to market, and then and having some good uh, advisors around you to to gain information from is your is your best defense to that.
0: And Mike, Marie Lavery, who I've had on the show a couple of times, she's the head of Export Development Canada. And she's saying that one of the big plays for Canada in the next decade, if not a 100 years, is to be this superpower in agriculture. That Canada really can stand up and with its brand, its farmable land, its fresh water, fresh air, we can be part of the solution for feeding this growing planet. Do
1: you see that, that that could be a place for Canada? A hundred percent. I see that. I mean, and being a, You know, being raised on the uh, on the prairies here in Manitoba, you know, it's all it's all agriculture and and seeing the times now, you know, we did it with hemp uh, that we made. We're, we're the global leading uh, business for, for hemp foods um, is based in Canada, shipping all over the world. But I see it in, in and it's happening a lot in plant based proteins now where we grow all these crops. But now we're taking it to the next level where we're going to invest in significant manufacturing to make, you know, pea protein and fava bean protein and other nuts and seeds that we grow in, into value value-added products. And uh, and Canada has a, uh, a a clean label, so to speak, around the world of, of, of offering high value, high quality. Uh, I think the time is ripe. And I, I think it's going to, I think it'll grow for decades in the future, that opportunity.
0: So my last question is, I lost my mom uh, when she was quite young. So she never really saw what I did. And I, I regret that because she's a
1: lot of the reason why I am who I am. Is your mom still with you? Uh, unfortunately not, and it's, it's a bit of a, a sad story, uh, Tony, but my mom, um, well, and I was very grateful and fortunate my mom worked at Manitoba Harvest. So after uh, a, a long career, about 25 years at, uh, at working for Shoppers Drug Mart as an accountant, I had the ability uh, and opportunity to hire my mom, and so she was the f- first or second in command for finance at Manitoba Harvest for uh, over seven years um and went through both of the uh sales of the business the first time and then the ultimate sale in 2019 um the, the sad part of the story is that um 3 weeks after she retired which was a day after we sold the business in 2019 uh she died uh, unexpectedly so she you know uh you know it, it was it was a double grieving for me but I, I I am very grateful that I had a chance to to work with her uh and she saw my uh she saw my success uh, directly over those years
0: I have to believe she's looking down from above and she's even more proud of the man you've become in terms of your ability to mentor, help, reach out, like she reaches out to you and your brother than even what you've did with your uh, financial payday. So it's uh, it's tough to lose them, but I think they're always with us. Mike, I end every podcast with the three things that I, I've learned. The first one I really want to take a lot of thought in is, is this concept of trust. Because I think entrepreneurs, we tend to trust anybody that likes our ideas. And I think that you shared an invaluable lesson of really understanding the importance of trusting the right people. The second is i love what you did with costco i mean anybody would have just jumped whatever you want costco i'll I'll sell you and you had the fortitude and the strength to say no we're going to focus on hemp hearts not milk because the time is right i think that decision was pivotal because because you had a brand that just absolutely took off but the third which i celebrate and i can only hope that there's thousands of you out there is that canadian you're not just growing commodities to sell them to the world you're growing commodities and driving them up the value chain with manufacturing and technology and brands so that around the world uh, people are not just eating ingredients but they're eating the value and value added that Canada is uh, is capable of Mike that I'm so uh honored to uh share your story and chat of the matters yeah thanks so much for having me Joining me now is Ryan Reese. He's a National Director of Agriculture for RBC. Ryan, I didn't even know a job like that existed. Tell me, what do you do for a living as a National Director of Agriculture? Uh,
2: So in my role, I lead the strategy for the agriculture sector, um, which is one of our key priority sectors at RBC. Uh, We've been working with farmers and businesses across the agriculture value chain for over a century. And We're really optimistic about the future of agriculture in Canada and and look forward to continuing to partner with our clients to help them achieve their goals for years to come. When you
0: talk about opportunity, there was a paper presented to the government. Marie Lavery came on from the Export Development Canada and talked about it. I'd love your opinion. And it cited that Canada can become a superpower in agriculture, that we could dramatically grow our exports and be a real part of the solution of feeding a growing population. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely I do. And I think we should be confident in our ability to achieve even more in the sector given already our our rich history in agricultural production. We we know we can accomplish this because we've done so much already. Um, Our farmers for over centuries has demonstrated uh, they do not shy from hard work. Uh, They understand the dedication and resiliency and passion that is required to be successful on the global stage and I believe those core traits will continue to be the foundation for so much more opportunity that Canada can seize. You know, Mike Fata's story is compelling. I mean, uh, seeds to riches stories.
0: But one of the things he's so passionate about is the fact that we move agriculture away from just being a, a producer of commodities to really moving up the supply chain, adding more value, doing more work with the branding and positioning. Is that something that RBC's bullish on as well that that we can extract more value from what we grow in our fields?
2: You know I, I certainly think there is there's still room for for both and, and you know we need both. We need those traditional agricultural farms that are that are producing commodities for for global needs uh, and shipping globally. But also you know I think that's the beauty of, of agriculture is that you have the opportunity to carve out the path that makes, the most sense for you. So, so you know, what Mike has accomplished is is incredible. And I think the more stories like Mike's that can be shared, uh, the more inspiration can be derived for, for others to embark on, you know, let's again call it non-traditional agricultural enterprises. And I think as farms with traditional business models continue to grow uh, and expand, as we're seeing in the industry, uh, we will see more investments in vertical integration and innovative ideas. And uh, of course, the invaluable entrepreneurial spirit. I ran an ad this
0: week on the radio talking about RBC and this initiative you're doing with Farm Credit Canada and Guelph University.
2: We're at a very unique juncture right now in the industry with a lot of intergenerational transfer of leadership on the farm. So I'm really pleased to tell you today about the Foundations in Agricultural Management. Uh, It's an initiative in partnership with the University of Guelph and, and Farm Credit, like you said. Um, And what it is, it's an agriculture focused, self-driven e-learning course that empowers farmers with the knowledge and confidence to take their farm or agribusiness to the next level. So the course will be delivered through a series of free of charge online video modules, and will be taught by notable University of Guelph agriculture and business professors. So in order to make it accessible to any producer, you know, and provide that flexibility for the user to take the course when it best suits them. So given farm operators often manage all aspects of their business, uh, the course material, you know, covers a pretty wide set of key concepts that are really important to running a successful operation. So whether that's strategy and business planning or financial literacy, HR management, we, we go fairly deep into succession planning. Uh, and also uh, risk management and mental health uh, as well, which is increasingly important. We are launching January 17th, uh, so keep your eyes open for
0: it. Ryan Reese, I have a much better understanding now what that role is for you at the bank, and you can just tell by listening to your words how passionate you are about a sector that I think we've really come to uh, value even more so during the pandemic. So thank you for joining me in Chat of the Matters. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.
2: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.